Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're at a very interesting time in China-Africa relations, in part because there is this series of conflicting narratives that are challenging how people perceive and understand and describe the China-Africa relationship. And in part, that became really, really evident over this past week in New York, when U.S. President Donald Trump gave a speech about Africa. Tell us a little bit about your first reaction about the Trump speech and how it throws this question of narrative into real dispute. The real thing that everyone went crazy about was the fact that Trump invented a new country um, called Nambia. Um, so that was very funny, and you know it was that was made fun of up and down the continent. What I found even slightly more upsetting than that was his other comments saying that he has all of these friends who go to Africa to get rich, um, which put a very kind of Cecil John Rhodes spin on the the U.S. Africa relationship, with, and I found it a little bit disturbing, but. It was this moment of high cluelessness in in U.S. Africa relations. Okay, so in order to kind of get our show on narrative started, I think it's best that we actually listen to the comments by U.S. President Donald Trump, who gave a speech to a number of African heads of state, including those from Ivory Coast, Ethiopia, Ghana, Nambia, which is actually Namibia, uh, and, and and several others. It was in the in New York after the United Nations General Assembly speech that uh, that Donald Trump gave. And so let's take a listen to Donald Trump speaking at a luncheon for African leaders. And I'm greatly honored to host this lunch, to be joined by the leaders of Cote d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, Ghana, Guinea, Nambia. Nambia's health system is increasingly self-sufficient. Africa has tremendous business potential. I have so many friends going to your countries trying to get rich. I congratulate you. They're spending a lot of money. But it does. It has a tremendous business potential and representing huge amounts of uh, different markets and for American firms, it's really become a place that they have to go, that they want to go. Now, Kobus, you said something very interesting. You said you thought it was funny that he said Nambia. And for the most part, you are like, I would say, 99% of the social media comments that I saw and, and even the press coverage, they thought it was funny that Donald Trump, you know, made up Nambia. I mean, of course, he didn't know that it was Namibia or could it have been Zambia? But at the time, we didn't know. But it shows, again, a level of cluelessness. But I think, again, to the subject of narrative that we're talking about, you know, people seem to give the United States a pass in Africa. And I just don't get it. I just don't get why that is acceptable under any circumstances and how the fact that, you know, the leader of, of, the, of the United States, the largest, you know, economy in the world, who's behaving like a buffoon, is not brought to task more by African social media commentators and African press and African leaders for the fact that he's a ridiculous joke. But yet, your first comment was the fact that it was funny. And to me, it's tragic. No, definitely. I mean, but you know, keep in mind there's a, the, you know, and, and, and in here, you know, I don't necessarily like 
you know, cast myself as an insider in this particular way, but there is a complicated politics of laughing in Africa. You know, Af Africans do laugh at lots of terrible things, um, you know, and it is, uh, it, you know, so I think part of the laughter around this issue is, uh, is because it was so predictable. Um, it was so, well, of course he wouldn't be able to find Namibia on a map, you know, I mean, he probably wouldn't be able to find any African country on a map. So, you know, there is something there that, well, of course, you know, um, and that that is also, it doesn't only confirm ideas about, about Donald Trump, but it actually does, there, there's a strong uh, narrative in Africa about about Americans just generally not being able to to have you know not being able to find any African country on a map and just generally referring to Africa as just one country because you know who cares what these what the actual countries are so I, I think to a certain extent it confirmed stereotypes of Americans um, you know which is which is maybe you know unkind to say because obviously that's not true for all Americans um, but at the same time it you know it, it is a moment where where Trump you know, it, it is the, the 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 tragedy and comedy of the fact that Trump is representing the U.S. You know, so in a weird way, he sometimes challenges our ideas of the, of what the U.S. is, and sometimes he, he confirms Africans' ideas of what the U.S. is. Okay, well, let's take a listen. It wasn't just social media commentators and academics like Kobus who kind of are laughing at it, but you know, at the same time, President Hage Geingob of Namibia uh, thought this was actually a benefit because it put Namibia on the map, according to what he said. But that Namibia put Namibia on the map. Huh? They have to explain. While I think they are teasing the president, they had to explain Namibia, where is it, and so on. So we got good publicity because of that. So, and I was also very much impressed meeting the president. We had different uh, expectations, but uh, to tell you the truth, he spent two hours with us at luncheon, and he listened. Uh, listening is an art which is very important. And if you can listen and ask questions, all of us got a chance to talk. He was not interfere, uh, interrupting and learning so that African leaders started to, <laughs> I didn't commit myself, but decided to say, look, people are saying you don't have African policy, but here it is. And I'm a new president. They were saying they never had a chance like that where the president would meet them and have lunch with them for two hours so Africans could put their case. So maybe it's a new beginning. I don't know. You, Kobus, I don't have words for what we just heard. I, I just, I mean, this to me is infuriating. I mean, this is the, this this is the beggar Africa that is sitting with its bowl handed out and shaking its little coin in its bowl saying, please, Mr. White Man, please, Mr. President, give me two hours of your time and to be grateful for what he got. Remember, this was a shared lunch. This was a lunch with five or six other African heads of state and hundreds of other people. So the fact that he got this Q&A and he said that the president was listening and he's ridiculing. Now, he may say he has to do this because, you know, he's dependent on hundreds of millions of dollars of American aid for PEPFAR funding and for any number of different kinds of programs. Okay, so maybe that's politics and he has to say it. But when you talked about reaffirming negative American stereotypes... When I hear what President Geingob was saying, that totally reaffirms awful, destructive, vile African stereotypes as well. 
I 100% see where you're coming from, and I, I to, to a certain extent, I agree with you. On the other hand, okay, again, I, I, t I find this a little bit funny, simply because he is just taking such a determinately glass-half-full perspective on this, this nightmare, um, but also because I think it is revealing of Namibia's position on the continent, which is super mild-mannered, super nice. You know, I mean, there's lots of other African leaders that would take a considerably harder line on this. I mean, imagine what Mugabe <laughs> would have said. Um, so, you know, Gangob is known for being, you know, very, very responsible, very, you know, generally Namibia is just a super nice country, you know, so um, so generally this this is kind of what I would expect from Namibia, but it's, yeah, I mean, I 100% agree with you that it is problematic. It's it's extremely problematic. And, but I, again, I think the issue is the, the, the problematic nature of it isn't simply, it isn't the situation that America had an amazing, very rich and and complex back and forth with Africa, which was then ruined when Trump became president. Because, I mean, remember in, under Obama, these presidents were also kind of ushered in, in groups. You know, he, he didn't really meet with anyone one-on-one -on -one either. So, you know, there, there was a strong feeling that Obama was similarly kind of either high-handed or distracted or just not very interested in Africa. So it's, it is part of a longer narrative in the relationship. Yeah, so let's contrast this a little bit with you know, some of the other relationships that Africa has uh, around the world. And it's not just with the Chinese. We're also talking about with the Japanese, the French, other European countries as well. And what's so interesting, and there's, there's the gap that you see between African leaders and their constituents, particularly uh, in, in the civil society sector. So we've been talking a lot about China and debt recently. And there's this this really growing concern that African countries, particularly countries like Kenya uh, and South Africa, are taking on massive amounts of Chinese debt. And yet, and that's bringing up all of these kind of fears of neocolonialism, imperialism, and going back to the dark old days in terms of, uh, of debt and, and, and losing sovereignty and agency in this world. And what's interesting is when you see social media commentators, particularly on our pages where we have a considerably large following, People are ready, you know, at the trigger to express this type of skepticism towards the Chinese. Now, I don't defend the Chinese here. I, they're worthy of all the skepticism we should throw at them. It's just remarkable to me to see the contrast between that and what people kind of throw towards the United States, which we don't see anywhere near the level of skepticism. Uh, and I just, for the life of me, cannot figure that out. Uh, I, you know, here we have a country like China, which is actively engaged in doing productive things in China for the most part. There are, I mean, in Africa, there are many, many downsides to, to China's engagement in Africa. But when you look at the, at the American engagement in Africa, which is largely focused on oil for the most part and militarism, and yet they get a pass. And I just don't get why. I just don't understand it. Um, there's... It, okay, I'm going to sound very academic for a moment. Like it tends to, it, it brings back to to. Com two different theories to my mind simultaneously. In the first place, old soft power theory, the the, the way that, that Joseph Nye set it out is that, you know, the idea that, that Nye had was that the U.S. just basically sits on a big cushion of goodwill, um, you know, because of all of the, it's because of the Cold War, because of all of the the, the whole century of, you know, fighting the Nazis and so on that, that they did, and that that has, yeah, that was a long, long time ago, 
Yeah, but that was a long time ago. I mean, the Cold War was 25 years ago. The vast majority of Africans, majority of the population are under the age of 25. The Cold War was 25 years ago. So they have no living memory of the Cold War. So how is it possible that things like World War II, the Cold War, and all of these things uh, come to bear in terms of shaping public opinion in Africa towards the United States? I don't mean particularly the, the World War II and Cold War themselves. I mean the legacy of the U.S. as the, the center of media freedom, of freedom of speech, that is the legacy of the Cold War and, and, and Second World War. Um, so I, I think that still, to a certain extent, still lives on. Um, so that could be one aspect. I mean, I'm not necessarily putting my money on it, but you know that, that does come to mind. The other one um, is I wonder a lot about race, in this particular issue and like the complexities of race um, because the other thing that it reminded me of is, is you know kind of the way that China is looked at by Africa is very reminiscent of the critique that that Edward Said did of the way that the West look at Asia, right, in, in Orientalism. So, you know, the idea that Asia is simultaneously, um, you know, savage and over, um, over-civilized, for example, you know, that, that everything that the West is not Asia is, and for that reason Asia is a problem. And there is a feeling for me sometimes that Africa has, has internalized Western ideas of what Asia is and is reflecting that back. Um, and that there hasn't been enough of the the working out of how toxic the relationship is with the West and the 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 the, the role that race plays in that um, you know in, in that relationship both towards towards between the U.S. and uh, between Africa and the West and between Africa and China and between the West and China, you know. So so the, it feels to me that there is there's a, like intellectual work that's not being done in Africa to to kind of unpack why the West has this kind of automatic pass. Yeah, so it's interesting you bring up Orientalism because that actually affects how people see, you know, Westerners, Europeans and Americans look at Asia. Uh, Asia in that broader context, that's a very broad definition of Asia. And, you know, sitting out here in China and in Asia, which were also the victims of European colonialism and American colonialism, incidentally, in places like the Philippines, um, it's hard, it's difficult for me, and there's a challenge moderating African social media communities like the ones that we have on LinkedIn and Facebook with hundreds of thousands of people because the the tone here in Asia is one where colonialism was a long time ago. They've moved on from it. They don't want to look back to it. Certainly the Vietnamese don't look back and let French colonialism define who they are today. They don't let American colonialism define who they are. Uh, the same in, 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 in Singapore as well. Uh, you, you can pick most Asian countries, and for the most part, colonialism is something that happened a long time ago. And it's interesting because you contrast that with Africa, and it's so different because colonialism still shapes the narrative so much. And, and I see it in every single day in our comments and our discussions that we're having on places like LinkedIn and Facebook, where the words imperialism, neocolonialism, control, this, this type of victimization kind of theme and narrative is still very much present there, with, of course, the glaring exception of talking about the United States, which is ironic to me because it's the United States that today controls, uh, for the most part, many of the international organizations that have a tremendous influence on daily African life, from the, NG, uh, from the World Bank to the UN to the IMF, 
and uh, they are the, you, yet you don't see that narrative connecting to the United States, but you certainly see the, the the colonialism narrative that goes towards Europe and certainly more and more towards China. So I just that's a that's a reflection, Cobus, more than a than a question or a point that I want to make. That for me, it's just interesting living in Asia, where again it was the again just as violent, and a lot of Africans will say, oh, it was different in Asia. It wasn't different in Asia. The British in India were horrific, just as they were horrific in South Africa and Kenya. The, the, the Portuguese were horrific out here. I mean, there is no way to sugarcoat colonialism no matter where you were in the world. But one of the, the arguments that I've gotten into with a number of Africans is, well, you know, in Asia it was done light. It wasn't that bad. And that's not true. That's, uh, I mean, you know from your own experience in terms of being a Japan scholar that what the Japanese did out here was also horrific. So colonialism happened not just from the Europeans, but it also happened from within Asia as well. And so the, the interesting point is that there, again, I'll, I'll bring it back to the point of our discussion, which is about narratives. And I don't see the burden of history holding back many Asian countries as we see it so evidently across so many African countries. So in, in connection to that, one thing that always baffles me about, about the, different, the different reactions to, to colonialism is that in... In China, there's so much stronger narrative of the humiliated China that needs to be recuperated. You know that you know there was this, this century of humiliation that happened, and then you know, and, and now China, Chinese growth is kind of a response to that. There's, you know, the the response to colonialism in Africa is similarly deep and profound, but it doesn't necessarily then translate into this hardcore development narrative that, that, is, that, you know, that, that it's coupled with in, in China. Um, why, why do you think that difference is there? Well, certainly the Chinese, and, and this is interesting because what I just said, which is that the that Asians in general are not hobbled by colonialism the same way that Africans are. China, in many ways, is an exception to that. And in part because the politics here uh, colonialism has been a very effective tool. I don't think the average person on the street or on social media thinks about colonialism anywhere near the level the, as much as what the government does and uses it as a lever and uses it as a lever to kind of motivate its people to say, never again will this happen. Never again will China be weak to the West or to Japan. Never again will we be victimized. And it's also kind of going back into their history and showing for the past 500 years, China has been weak. But for the prior 2,000 years or 1,500 years to that, China was the dominant power of the world. And Xi Jinping has this mindset that says that China is simply regaining and reassuming its proper place in the world as the, the hegemonic power. And that's what we're seeing right now. One of the things that's so interesting is here in Shanghai, you will go to uh, Century Park, you'll go to Century Boulevard. And all of that is in the context of the 21st century, which will be the Chinese century. And it is the kind of explicit articulation of the reassumption of their place atop the international food chain. And so this idea that the past 500 years with the rise of Europe and the exploitation of, by Europeans and by Japanese at the hands of foreigners will never happen again. And that fuels this nationalism on social media and it fuels this nationalism in the government. We see it in things like Wolf Warrior 2, the movie we talked about a couple months ago, with this, this idea of never again. Almost like the battered wife who says, never again will this happen, will I be the victim? And, and that is such a 
strongly different narrative than than what we see coming out of him. It's so interesting to com- to compare it to these kind of narratives in Africa because you know as we've discussed many times there's a there's this interesting almost return of the repressed or return of history kind of argument in, in the African version of this where this, it's almost inevitable that someone is going to be colonizing Africa again. You know, that, that there, there is this almost fatalistic narrative of, well, Africa will always be always be kind of the victim of something and that is not a that is not a you know there's a there's a version of that which is obviously a white supremacist you know narrative which is like well you know africa is there essentially for use you know which which is something that you that, that was very much like you know that was part of apartheid rhetoric and i think that comes in in, in right-wing like european and american rhetoric sometimes as well but there is a, a left-wing black nationalist African version of that same narrative, which is essentially like, you know, the entire world, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, that that Public Enemy album title, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Like, the whole world is engaged in essentially trampling Africa, you know, and, and it, it is it is the kind of hidden central narrative of world history, is is this this constant repeated kind of victimization of Africa. Um, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how, how two such complete opposite narratives can emerge from a, from a similar kind of colonial experience. Well, there's this, this fatalism that I see, and this is a commonality between China and Africa as well. Uh, when we talk about the people, there's a certain degree of fatalism that they have in terms of their leaders, that, the, that so much is out of their control, whether it's the corruption, whether it's the, fa- the lack of democracy, the lack of ability to influence, uh, whether it's the, the lack of accountability that African and Chinese leaders have to their people through direct means of accountability. Now, obviously, there are channels like social media, uh, even popular media, and there's other ways that leaders are being held to account. But it is very interesting that in Africa you get this sense of people complaining and then kind of looking to their leaders and saying, well, you know, they're just so corrupt, they're just so inefficient, they they don't look out for themselves, they should look out more for us, but at the end of the day, well, that's just the way it is, and that's the way it's always going to be. And I think there is a sense of fatalism, too, in many parts of China uh, about that same thing that, you know, there's a, a, an old Chinese heaven uh, expression saying, well, the, the mountains are high and the heavens are far, and that and that idea is that the leaders are far, far away. And so there's nothing that can be done. And again, this, this kind of like, you know, grim fatalism that, you know, things will be what they will be, but we don't have any control. And I think that shades a lot of the outlook that people have uh, towards their ability to be optimistic uh, towards the future. Because they say, even if they think that it's Europeans that are going to victimize them or Chinese who are going to victimize them, they also feel victimized by their own leaders. Yeah, I, do, I definitely think so, and I think I think a part of part of the narrative, and again, one one needs to look at where this narrative comes from, because you know, obviously, as you as you pointed out, the 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 very militant, you know, we will we will take get you gain strength from this experience of weakness kind of developmentalist narrative that you see in China, I mean, that is, a, as you say, it's a, it's a government narrative. It's a, it's a government, it's a state narrative. Um, I think frequently the, the neocolonialist narrative that you see in Africa from, uh, about China-Africa relations is actually, is kind of coming from below. So there is this, you know, there, there is this um, kind of context within which it happens where it's, where it's like, well, yeah, these African governments are all talking development and they're talking win-win development, but we know Africa is just going to end up being victimized again. So it's a, that narrative is a, there's a form of resistance in you know inherent to that narrative. So um, 
you know, the, the old uh, South African anti-apartheid struggle slogan, Aluta Continua, the, the, the struggle continues. You know, it, 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 it keeps running. Like, you know, you, you, like victory is, is never, it's, it's, victory is never conclusively won. You need to keep, continue the struggle towards liberation. And I think that there's a, there's a kind of a logic that, a logic of, of struggle from below that, that is involved there. Yeah. Well, let's kind of wrap up our discussion by going back to the beginning of our talk, which was uh, about the United States, China, and the stories that these two countries are telling and, and how they're being received in Africa. And I want to bring us back to a discussion that you and I had in the taxi here in Shanghai uh, a couple weeks ago when you were in town. And, and it was, I, was remi- I was recounting to you that you, know, you look around the streets here and it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, it is mind-blowing to see what the Chinese have done in the past 25 years. You cannot believe that 25 years ago, when I first came here as a student, that there was nothing here. There were fields where Pudong is, which is the now the kind of Asian financial center, in some ways the new kind of emerging kind of world capital to replace New York. You couldn't, you, there was nothing there. It was fields. I have pictures of me standing in the middle of fields. There was no Subway, this is, there was not the largest city in the world as it is today. The infrastructure here is remarkable. And it brought up an interesting story that you and I were talking about, about how China portrays itself to the world. Maybe it should shut down all of its Confucius centers. Maybe it should stop spending hundreds of millions of dollars on boring, terrible propaganda at CGTN and Radio China International and China Daily. The story that Africans want to hear is the story of what they've done in a place like Shanghai where 25 million people went from below subsistence to being at a European Union standard of living. And that's really the development story that I think is the most compelling thing for a country like Africa, because it's very, very relevant. That's what people want. I mean, that's what, and and your reflections on that when you were driving through the taxis, you know, when we were driving through town and looking at it, and I was kind of telling you what it was before to what it is today, that to me is a message that I think would resonate far more effectively than the garbage BS propaganda that the Chinese are pushing out today in terms of win-win development and all the, 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 the boring news that they put out there. To, you know, um, I don't know. It just seems to me as we're talking about narratives and stories that that's something very compelling. And I'd, I'd kind of get, I'd be interested in your take on that. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you. And I think to a large extent that that narrative is slowly starting to, starting to take off. But I think... It's a, it's a slower narrative because it's a narrative that def- that depends a lot more on people having actually gone to China. Um, so that's a narrative that that's that's pushed by by people who spent some time there and then saw you know kind of what the general um, standard of living was and then you know once they get home that that's the story they start telling. Um, yeah. So, so you don't believe a, it until you see it. Yeah, you really it's, can't it's, believe it's it until a, you see it. It's a longer term narrative. Um, and in speaking about that, bringing it. Back to the U.S., um, you know, part of part of the I think the reason why generally the Nambia thing was laughed at is because Trump is to a large extent seen as a triviality, as a person. He's seen as a, as a kind of a trivial person, so he is entertaining. You know, in, in the you know in, in, in that sense, um, because oh look what he's doing now. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, what I wonder though is is do you think say let's say Trump for example has a, a, a standard four year term or even an eight year term. Um, Will that be sufficient to change the narrative of the entire U.S. in the world? Or do you think it'll just be a little blip and then it'll be back to a technocratic Hillary Clinton-style president next time and it'll just revert back to Obama-style U.S.? 
No, we're not going back to to that. Those days are over. Once the the egg doesn't uncrack itself and you can put it back together again. Uh, I think a lot of liberals and a lot of progressives would like to think that that's possible, but it seems that the culture has changed. Breitbart isn't going away. Steve Bannon isn't going away. Donald Trump himself, after he's out of office, will not going away. Um, there's a fascinating article in the Atlantic magazine this month by Tanahasi Coates, which talks about how you know, leftist liberals in the United States would like to say that this was all the doings, you know, Trump is the response to the white working class, when in fact, he's really the response to white America in many respects. And white America is aggrieved. And there's a sense of, of racial kind of tension that is kind of coming up into the system that is going to define our politics for a very, very long time. And I think internationally, what we're going to see from the United States is that it's just not as relevant. So you talked about how African leaders may be laughing it off. Well, Angela Merkel isn't laughing it off anymore. And Angela Merkel really is rising to become the leader of the free world. Germany now is becoming the epicenter of the free world. People are not taking Donald Trump seriously. But rather than what we're seeing out of the president of Namibia, who is, you know, entertaining this, uh, more and more leaders from Xi Jinping to Angela Merkel, even to Theresa May in Britain, are just ignoring Donald Trump and moving on without him. We're seeing free trade deals being done here in Asia that don't include the United States, the reconvening of TPP without the Americans. We're seeing, we're talking about African free trade groups that don't have any presence of the Americans involved in it. Um, this is going to happen more and more, and the United States is going to be marginalized and isolated more and more. And, yeah, and that's not going to be able to be undone. That will not be undone. But I'm just frustrated that we're not seeing out of Africa the same thing that we're seeing out of other parts of the world, which is a tougher line against the Americans, whether it's on militarism, the war against terror, all of these different things where people are saying enough. Sure, I mean, enough. true. But maybe maybe this kind of, maybe not even bothering getting angry about this, maybe that is a part of that response. Maybe that is, well, you know, well, who cares? Um, he, yeah. you, you know, like he, he, we're not getting anything out of the U.S. anyway. It's not, you know, it's it's increasingly a kind of receding from African shores. Let's focus on more important people. You know that that might that might be the logic behind the laughter. That might be it, and that's why maybe my frustration might be actually be misplaced, and I might be misreading the the signs and the signals that are being sent out of African leaders. Uh, you know, towards the United States. And in fact, the United States is just less relevant. They're just less relevant. And that is the, the painful reality that we're seeing when you don't have American diplomats, whether there's, there's not, I, as far as I know, there's not even an assistant secretary of state for Asia that's been appointed. There's no ambassador to Singapore. There's no assistant secretary for Africa. When you simply are not at the table because you don't have the people there, then you're not participating and people move on. So whether it's on climate change, whether it's on cryptocurrency, whether it's on all of these multinational issues, the United States simply is not at the table. And I think, you're, to your point, they might go on. Okay, we've had a, a little bit of a freewheeling, a little bit more of a random style show today. <laughs> we like, you know, let's mix it up. We like to change it up a little bit here. Uh, but we would love to hear what you think. You, we've taken some rather strong opinions here about Chinese, about Americans, about Europeans, about Africans, about Namibians specifically. Even we didn't, interestingly, Cobus, we didn't bring up your own your uh, your own president Jacob Zuma, who usually comes up in the discussion of crazy leaders. Yes, let's, so, let's uh, not go there. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a little bit of a surprise, but 
We would like to hear from you. We moderate this community, this great discussion every single day. Kobus and I are posting on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Uh, let's see where else, on iTunes. We're posting all over every single day. And uh, we're lo- we love having the conversations with you. So do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think of the things that we've said today? Part of what we're saying today is to help generate that discussion. That's what we're about. We want to have this conversation. Um, we are also persuadable. So I've said a lot of things tonight or today that um, I have very, very strong views. But if you kind of talk me into a different way of seeing things, as Cobus by the end of this program has, by saying, well, maybe in fact humor and maybe in fact the the kind of the you know the, the the way that African leaders are responding to to Trump is in fact a reaction in and itself, and a very subtle, sophisticated reaction. In that maybe we're not going to see a direct antagonistic reaction as I'm proposing, or as we've seen out of Europe. Uh, well, then there we go. So that's the kind of thing that we're absolutely open to being. Uh, to being persuaded by your points of view and your views. So we would love to hear from you. Uh, Kobus, before we go, you know, talk to us a little bit about what you do on Facebook and what we both do on Facebook and LinkedIn in terms of these discussions that we're trying to get from people and the types of comments that we moderate. We On Facebook, we essentially run a news aggregation service. So it's a little service where every four or four, five hours, there will be one China-Africa-related headline in your news feed. So we essentially try and provide a service for people where they don't have to go to a special site. They just get a little little tidbit of Africa, China-Africa news uh, you know, in, on a site that they lo- they're looking at anyway. Um, and so that, that is essentially the, you know, we were trying to integrate greater awareness of China-Africa relations into people's everyday lives. And over on LinkedIn, you can find me at LinkedIn at Eric Olander, O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm doing something a little bit different over there where I'm actually intentionally being provocative and kind of giving some analysis and trying to, again, spark a discussion on the key issues of the week. I'm posting probably two or three times a week. Whenever there's really a, a meaty, worthwhile article that comes out, I'll put some commentary and then on the weekends, we post our podcast there, and that always has uh, an essay tied to it as well that is then ripe for discussion and for pulling apart. So uh, that's what we're doing. Of course, on Mondays, every Monday, we have our newsletter that goes out, and that is a highly curated uh, selection of the best stories of the week uh, in China-Africa news from all different kinds of sources. So if you want to find that, head over to our Facebook page at China at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. You can sign up there or you can sign up over on our uh, homepage at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show and most likely with a guest. We'll be back to our regular format, but we we did want to bring you this uh, kind of more free-flowing style of uh, program this week. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.